This episode contains graphic content that may be alarming to some. Listener discretion is advised. I may have fucked up in taking myself too seriously for those beginning years, even during interviews, not being a joker and not trying to find something funny in everything everybody says. Yeah, I fucked that up. <laughs> Come on, man, let's go. Let's get that one more time. This is a show inspired by one of my kids who, for them, making mistakes and facing failure when things aren't predictable can be really tough. But life isn't predictable. If you want to be successful at anything, mistakes and failure, they're just required. You've got to fall down if you want to move ahead. And in today's social media world, we're so good at posting our best angles with the best filters. We're not posting the mistakes we make. We're posting our victories. But that's not real life. Being a Grammy-nominated songwriter, producer, and entrepreneur, I get to hang with some of the most influential, bigger-than-life human beings on the planet. And even when making the biggest hit records, few nail it on the first take. I'm going to try and challenge the stigma of fucking up and explore how even the most successful people face personal and professional moments of doubt and hopefully show all of us that our failures are more fragile moments are where greatness is born. I'm your host, Billy Mann, and this is Yeah, I Fucked That Up. Ask anybody in the middle of the 80s who was the romantic singer that made you think of walking on the beach with your shirt open and your hair flowing in the wind and a tiger at each side. And it would be my friend, our next guest, Michael Bolton. Michael has sold over 75 million records worldwide, and he is one of the most recognizable voices in music. And it's not just that he had all these hits at the beginning of his career. He did not wake up one day, get a record deal, and become a megastar. There is so much more to it. And when he got the success, keeping it didn't just happen because he got lucky. It's because he worked. And while he was so famous and continues to be somebody who, when he goes to a restaurant, everybody stares at and goes, that's Michael Bolton. He has to be a person. He's also a father and a grandfather, and he's a friend, and he's written songs with Bob Dylan. Jay-Z has covered records of his. He is the most philanthropic artist I've ever met. So I wanted to talk to Michael about his fuck-ups, about his moments of self-doubt, because my hope is that when people are listening to Michael Bolton talk about whatever comes up from our conversation, that what you take away from it isn't just an artist who has flaws and inconsistencies and questions like the rest of us, but some respect and understanding for a public figure who's managed to balance being a person available to everybody and also being a person who isn't always available to the people that matter the most. And that is what we're all juggling, whether you're at your day job or whether you're on tour around the world, we're just trying to figure out that balance. So in the midst of TV shows and recordings and album releases and touring, I'm really grateful to have you here. Welcome, Michael Bolton. So I read your book, as you know, and I actually had a chance to go back and watch a bunch of interviews that you've done. When you're an artist, and for me, working with artists, when you're at this very high altitude, you have stock answers and stories that you can pull off of because you're often asked the same question all the time. And I want to try to get your help so that I avoid some of that because 
I really want to dive into embracing the failures and fuck-ups in the course of time. So my one of the things I thought of was if I asked your mom and she was able to tell me right now her first moment where she thought, oh, Michael, don't do that. What, what do you think that would be? <laughs> <laughs> wow. She was more than supportive of me. I was living out her life because she wanted to be a singer at a time in, in the United States where a woman with three kids and a husband were meant to be at home, particularly at dinner time. Mm. And she didn't get to pursue her career, but I did. And so when I look back, I have so much appreciation of my mother and the support she gave us that was nonstop through some very, very tough times, tough times in her own personal life. You know, my parents were, let's say they didn't get along so well. Mm. Never a musical critique, mm. you know, never something where I hadn't heard from her and all of a sudden she just saw a new single or a new mm -hmm. video or something. But she was very free about expressing her opinion about my choices when it came to my personal life. Was there one person that you were involved with that she really objected to that kind of sticks out in your brain? Yeah, but I don't feel comfortable right. sharing that. <laughs> Did she say you're about to like fuck up your whole life? Was it not that those were the words she said, but was it essentially that? No, but she could use those words right. if, if it was appropriate. Right. Um, no. She wasn't afraid of that. I think I'm so used to her talking about, you know, the new show or the new concert mm -hmm. or the new record or something that she loved musically that I was surprised that she is focusing on my mm -hmm. dating, basically. My mom was similar. She was always someone who felt like I could do no wrong. And if I did wrong, she would defend me even if she disagreed with me. But privately, mm -hmm. sometimes my mom would say, Let's talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been two very welcome words. <laughs> but let me feed off that for a second. Your parents didn't get along. What was that like as an environment for you as a kid? It was a war zone. Divorce with kids is a war zone of sorts for most of us who have you know, kind of had to be silent observers because we didn't want the fight to go the battles to go the wrong way for either one of our, we loved our parents. And you don't learn until you're a generation ahead with your own children, the psychological impact of watching the two most important people to you fail to get along. Somehow it all works out. It does work out. But the impact of, of my parents disagreeing and just really not wanting to spend any more time together but wanting us to feel protected and safe, which also manifested in this way that they became the biggest fans musically of my career, every aspect of it. It wasn't until I was going through my divorce a lifetime later that I had the ability to spend time with the therapist, find out what motivated me, what was really going on, what I was really meaning to say, what I observed, and to come out the other end of a lot of therapy, feeling much more clear about everything and having compassion for both of them because they weren't happy. And so I learned a lot from that and a lot that I was able to use to apply with my own kids who were going through quite a bit of what, what I went through as a child. 
if you want to know what somebody's about or, or you're interested in seeing somebody and being on the edge of a relationship, starting a relationship, it would be good for you to know something about someone's parents, to know their upbringing, to, to get a glimpse of a sense of their belief systems. It's a kind of a weather forecast, a, a blueprint. Do you think that in some ways your parents' failure to manage their marriage somehow you felt a sense of ownership of that failure or you and Oren, your brother, did you feel that way or did you feel like, okay, that's like their thing and I'm on the outside? Consciously, I felt like this is their thing and they have to go through it and I don't know what it's going to mean for me, but it's scary. And I think that they say children are resilient and I think to a certain extent they are, even though you wouldn't wish your kids to go through the experience of a turbulent relationship. I think that you don't get the sense of responsibility of committing to the problems and the, the storms. There is a, a, a certain amount of responsibility that you unconsciously take on because you relate so much to, again, your most important people of your life, in your life. It's the reason that therapists say, whatever happens, don't spend time and energy in front of your children with anything negative about the other parent because children identify their parents as themselves. There's a blurry line there. Mm. And if you say, oh yeah, you know what she did today? And then vent. The child doesn't hear you just talking about the other parent. The child hears you talking about them. Mm. And that became such a, an important bit of knowledge for me and knowledge that I pass on to friends who are going through similar things. The idea that you started music, was there a moment or someplace that you remember the first time that you performed and what it felt like? Not the very first performance, because I had a band. When the British invasion happened, the Beatles, the Stones, Zombies, Kinks, everything changed. But I put together a band... <laughs> We would perform anywhere we could get in. Right, but in New Haven, Connecticut, like, where is that? So in, like, in New Haven, in Woodbridge, Westville, Bar Mitzvahs. Nice. Any excuse, we would tell somebody, we could tailor the set, you know, to right. feel appropriate to the event. I think that just the desire to just make music was so predominant that everything else just eventually just started fading into background. Right. But there was a first gig that you remember that in particular where it felt like, okay, this is what I'm doing. Yes. I would say that would be at the exit, a bar underneath a church in downtown New Haven. The exit would have groups play there and they invited us to play. And I was about 13 years old and had my hair almost down to my waist, wire rim glasses. Nice. People didn't know what to make of me. <laughs> and I would sing, I was born in Chicago, 1941. I was born in Chicago. And then up an octave further down. Mm. And people would just stand there and just gawk at me. Like, what are we looking at? <laughs> Who is this? And what, what, what music is this? And it was basically the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Was the feeling, like, the shock feeling, the feeling that gave you the rush? 
I mean, obviously just singing gave it to you, but was it more like people looked at you and they were like, okay, what what the fuck is this? Well, it's a combination of that and me asking myself, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Um, But what was the, in the moment, sorry, but in the moment after that happens, is it like, okay, when's the next gig and what am I doing? I just remember there was the night at the exit where we were performing our regular set. I remember to this day, the song was, I've Got a Mind to Give Up Living, a blues track that I'd heard from some artist who was working with Paul Butterfield Blues Band. And I was singing, and everything was coming together like this magical, powerful experience that I was not in control of, but had surrendered to. And the audience was coming with us. So they weren't just staring, you know, and gawking and wondering. They were consumed in in the moment of whatever I was doing. <laughs> and my band would come with me, whatever whatever we wanted to cover, whatever songs were, were beneficial at the time, to get more gigs. The band would always come with me and trusted me putting together the set list. I remembered from that time on, something happened that was so powerful that you weren't thinking about anything. You weren't thinking about your pitch or who's in the audience or what you're going to do with this next vocal ad lib. You were just doing it. It's so amazing how music can just reward you from doing it. I know you then went on to get your first record deal with Epic Records and you were 14. 15. 15, I'm sorry. But you're signed to Epic Records and then essentially drop from Epic Records. And all of the excitement when you're 15 and you have a record deal from a major label, and then clearly everybody's like, oh, did you hear that Michael got a record deal? And that becomes a headline. And then you get this letter, you're free to go letter. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? It was a challenging moment. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what the letter, accompanying letter, meant. But the letter basically said, you can now feel free to sign with whoever you'd like, meaning they were dropping us. And it didn't make sense because I thought they, they were excited about the record and moving forward with us. But I didn't realize that's, that's what they say before they say, so sorry it didn't work out. <laughs> See you in the industry. What did it feel like? Well, I had had a, a previous kind of taste of the record industry a year before when we did our first single for them for Epic and then received it in the mail and it my name was spelled Bolotkin, Michael Bolotkin and it was the wrong mix so I kind of had a taste of what the industry is going to be like scenes of coming attractions and the reality that this record contract is over this deal is over with Epic Records. I didn't have any idea what the subtleties were and what was being communicated other than this didn't work out, we're moving on. There was no phone call. I'm really sorry, the record company loved the record, but we're going in a different direction or something like that. But did you cry? No. I got a little angry that they mixed the wrong mix and spelled my name wrong. But I didn't know how difficult or how long it was going to be from that point on till I had my first hit record. You were 
in your 30s before you had a big smash as a solo artist and you were raising your daughters and you were on food stamps. And I don't think people really understand not just all that happened between the age of 14, 15 and that period, but the idea that when they look at Michael Bolton and the story of your career, that there's really layers of difficult times that have required stamina and resilience. I'll tell you what there wasn't. There wasn't a plan B. There was no plan B. And I can be grateful of that, even though there's a lot that comes with the music industry, a career in the music business, that is so challenging for a family. If you're an artist in downtown New Haven, there were a lot of aspiring artists, mostly one guitar, acoustic guitar, and um, a sleeping bag. And you could crash at a friend's house for a couple of days. When you have a family, where do you begin and how hard that could possibly get? We had rent checks that were bouncing to a landlord who was a nice guy, didn't want to kick us out. We didn't have the term homelessness back then, at least I never heard it, but we were close to that. And so there were times when I thought out of responsibility to my family, I have to think about an option. But there was always somebody who worked for Clive Davis or who worked at a record label and had some reason to come back and forth to Connecticut from New York who would show up at a gig in Connecticut and say, I think you could make it in the music business. Would you consider going in the studio and working with me and can't promise you a record contract, but something you're working on, maybe writing right now, we could record that. And I had that going on. The jingles and writing songs for other artists saved me and my family before I had my first hits as, as an artist. And I was in New York writing. I had a publishing contract where I had to deliver a certain amount of songs per year. You know about those. Mm-hmm. And we were using these background singers on the demos, but they were late at a session in New York City. And a friend of mine apologized who invited the, the girls to sing. He said, they're not usually late, but they're coming from a really big jingle session. And I said, jingle session? What's that? And they said, oh, they do commercials. You know, like all these things you hear on radio and TV. They're the voices of a lot of them. Like Luther Vandross was one of the biggest, most successful jingle singers in the business. And we did our session and we started talking about the fact that they're going back and doing more jingles. And they said, are you seriously interested in doing jingles? I said, are you kidding? from what you just described, show up and I sing and my family gets paid. Right. And I said, I'd love to. And then all of a sudden that career took off and I started singing. Be all that you can be. Get an edge on life in the army. Me and 12 other people. And I had really great producers who were in the world of jingles really at the top. Susan Hamilton being one of them. And once you start working with them, they start using you for more things, right? Yeah, they like once they know that you've got that thing, then they keep showing up for more. And that's a good living, but you weren't satisfied with that. No, I, I wasn't in it for a good living at that point. <laughs> but typically, when you are driving a hundred miles an hour towards a destination, you're gonna get hit by a few things. I mean, I've had moments with my kids where I've been on the road working, and I've missed a concert and I have beat myself up over it. And I, I really 
always want to prioritize my family, but I also know that I'm providing for my family. Does that enter into it? It enters into it, but you learn before too long you can never buy back the time. You can never buy back the experiences that you may or would have. When you think of your family, your girls, is there a moment now when you look back, you're on the high-speed train of your career, you think, man, I I fucked that up? Hmm. Not a specific conversation as much as an ongoing conversation and apologies and and offers to take them to sit in the front row with Michael Jackson performing on stage and all the other things that cheer them up and make them feel special that they had the opportunity to do, to be a part of. But there's a, I'm sure I've got a secret list of me hitting myself with a secondary stick, how I missed this or that. But I used to fly in. I would work in L.A. a lot. Songwriting took off for me in Los Angeles. So I would fly JFK to LAX like every couple of days and back. And I was so relieved that I was actually having success and my family was going to be okay. That's a lot of pressure. I had so many near hits that didn't become hits. And, and you know that my writer friends and, and recording artist friends have all had this experience where we watched success come on a large scale to friends of ours and then disappear an album later. Like it could be less than a year later. So for me, what that did was it educated me in a way that the bias was multiplied, that I'm not going back to eviction notices and rent checks bouncing and which kids I can get food and clothes for for the next month or whatever it is. I'm not going back there. So that's what love is all about. Huge breakthrough song. Mostly adult contemporary on that one. But it was... It was number one. It was number one record. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first time you heard it on the radio? I was going into New York to work, and all of a sudden I heard, that's what love is all about on the radio, and I just like took it in, just breathed and listened to it. And I listened as a producer to like all the potential flaws, that <laughs> things I could have fixed if I had another hour in the studio. That breath that nobody hears like, in the <laughs> middle of a sentence. And then the next thing I know, the next song at the end of the song of That's What Love Is All About was a jingle I did. And it was very obviously me, vocally. And I was kind of excited about it because it meant like they're playing me, whether they know it or not, they're playing me at the same time they're playing my record. They're playing my jingle. And then you're calling your manager and going... And then <laughs> I, called, I called Louis Levin and said, we got to stop the jingles. Got to stop them. What do you mean? Why are we stopping them? You're doing great. People are going to hear the record and they're going to hear the jingle. They're not going to know which one is me or, or which one is the real artist and which one is just making a living doing jingles, which is not a bad living. Okay, so you have this success starts and the success train is massive. Okay, you're sexiest man alive and like countless issues of People magazine. I'm sorry, what did you you're, say? You're, <laughs> you're, you're flying, touring, you've got the jets and the trucks and large venues. And at some point, you get a review and it's terrible. I think the sting of those words, not all of them, but I'm just curious because they become kind of trigger words, I think, for people. Well, 
I remember one time the girls used to come on the road with me and they would come to some shows, which I know they got tired of after a while, the same shows, even in their great seats. But as it turns out, they loved raiding the minibar in the hotels and watching the movies in the hotels. So it wasn't all about coming to see dad in concert. But I remember I had one of the strongest responses from an audience that I could remember that I, to this day. And I performed a song I wrote with a friend of both of ours, Walter Afanasiev, and it was about our kids. It's about being a parent and just the love we have for our kids, how specific it is and how core deep it is. The song is called Soul of My Soul, and my girls told me they were crying while we were performing the song. And so that's not a place of loud celebration. That's a really quiet, make-you-cry kind of moment for an artist, for anybody. And then I was on the plane the next day reading a review of the concert, which was a big mistake. (laughs) It's a mistake to read the reviews. It was a music critic, and he said he felt bad for my daughters, that that was a song about them. And I had the inside information that they were crying. So which one should I pay attention to and absorb? And which one should I not spend another second thinking about? You have one of the best sense of humors of anybody I know. and Coming from you? you <laughs> not just because you do a great Rodney Dangerfield, but more you've used the humility that you have built somehow the reserves over time to then harness that and put it to work for you. You did it with Lonely Island and Captain Jack Sparrow. You did it with your Valentine special on Netflix, which is hilarious. I don't know a single person with a sense of humor who hasn't discovered their humor first by somehow being the subject of the joke. Mm. What is that like? Ironically, the Jack Sparrow character was a lot closer to my own personality, as you probably well know. I was a big fan of the Lonely Island guys and all the, all of the pretty much every video they did for Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. When it was released and went viral, people told me, you're going to see something tomorrow that you've never seen before in your career. Right. And that, that viral explosion, when it happens, mm-hmm. it's like, it's dynamite in a barrel, right? Yeah, I think it's more than dynamite. <laughs> it's something else. Why do you think that that was refreshing? Do you think that people thought you took yourself too seriously before that? For sure. Definitely. I was told that. I've been told that during interviews, you know, and I, I didn't celebrate as much as I should have or as I could have because I was always concerned about what's coming up next and wanted to be prepared with something great, a great hook, a great title, a great theme. The bar was set pretty high with the producers that I worked with and people like yourself, artists and writers, would spend a lot of time working with me on songs for the next project, and that was what was important to me. I used success as fuel to be able to have more success on my own terms. And by that time in my career, the voices of dissent and the critics, they had to admit that they loved the Jack Sparrow video. And they would ask me, so like, you're like now, like, 
cool. What does that feel like? And I said, it feels great when I'm getting ready to you know, do something with great creative people. And basically, it's changed my life in a very, very positive way. The show is about the moment where people say, yeah, I fucked that up. To me, it's important because it takes people who are at this high an altitude sharing that for people that probably will never get to this altitude to feel like they're not failures. And so I just wonder if there's a moment where you think, man, I, I fucked that up. I may have fucked up in taking myself too seriously for those beginning years, even during interviews, not being a joker and not trying to find something funny in everything everybody says. I think I just took it all too seriously. And so the irony is, the good news is, you can still have fun at your own expense. And it's a bigger laugh and more fun. I don't regret much, except for all the time that I may have been able to spend more with my kids during the edge of starvation zone of raising them and feeling completely overwhelmed that I don't know how we're going to survive. What would you say to your girls now from all of that that you went through? I would say that I'll always wish that I had the time back to spend more time with them through the becoming years, the really steep climb years, mostly. And... And I'm so grateful that they've become incredible women they are. I'm so proud of them. Most of all, I love them so much. It's got to feel good to know that it's not too late to be able to say that. Yeah, I'm grateful. It's not too late. I find myself trying to figure out ways to fly in from wherever I am. I love seeing them at home. I love that we raised them in Connecticut. You know I've been here for 34 years. I built this studio so I could have dinner with my girls, not have to drive into New York City just to record a vocal or finish writing a song or whatever. And that was the best investment I made until that time in my life, because having dinner with your kids is a big deal. You know, I modeled my life after seeing Walter Afanasiev and you and Rudy Perez, really mentors of mine, David Foster, where you had your home and your studio in close proximity and you could be working crazy hours, but then be home for dinner and then go back to work. I'm super grateful to you for mm. that. Is there any advice you would give just people around the world on how to deal with failure or moments of failure and self-doubt? I just feel like everything that I've read or seen footage of and the history of achievers and people who have done great things in the world and done great things for their families. The great things never come from calm skies, you know, blue perfection somewhere. And like, it's always fraught with challenge and testing how much you really want something, how important something really is to you. All of the deepest thoughts and feelings that you can have, no matter what arena you're in, it's safe to say that it's very likely all the greatest champions in their different realms and choices of occupation and career faced very, very daunting, if not terrifying, 
challenges that they had to overcome in order to have success. You've got these amazing grandkids. When one of them goes through a moment where they feel like they've really fucked up, they've failed, what do you want them to know? What do you want to say to them? I would just express and make sure that it was clear that I was expressing 100% support for them and love for them. And I would remind them what my father used to speak in sports metaphors all the time. And it was always about, for, for my brother and I, was keeping your legs kicking because that's, that's where the big muscles are and how to break tackles is never stop your lower body movement moving forward. Your forward motion is what gets you on from here or through whatever you're going through, whatever the challenge is. And mostly, one thing that my father somehow, amidst all of it, did communicate was just that that's one moment in time and you've got so many more opportunities. Just nothing but support and belief. It's amazing what a little bit of attention and love and support can do for somebody when they're against the ropes, they fall down, just that little spark of light that they receive that's intentional. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well that little bit can go a long way. I'm grateful to say I love you. You're my dear friend and brother and collaborator. I and, love you too, buddy. And thank you, Michael. When I started this interview with Michael, there's a part of me that thought, like any of these interviews, you never know where it's going to go because you're asking people to volunteer their fragile moments. And that's not easy to do. And for celebrities who are under the watchful eye at all times, that guard that's up, it's hard to turn that off. And I'm just grateful to Michael for volunteering and to all the guests who volunteered. For me, as his friend, who has a look inside the life that he lives with his family, that he is ultimately like the rest of us, which is outside of our work, whatever it is, we're trying to figure out how to be parents and partners and friends and to get the love right in our lives. And there isn't a chart position or an award or a plaque that can make the love right for us with the people in our lives. And that sounds kind of basic, but when it's all said and done, we're not gonna really be able to take those trophies with us. We're gonna see what parts of us live in the people that we loved and what do they do with that after we're gone. The humility and the emotion that I saw in Michael to talk so openly about his girls, I am sure is just gonna lead him to what Michael always does, which is how do I do better? How do I change and evolve and do a better job of being me? That is the no plan B Michael Bolton. Since he was 15, getting signed to a record deal, and now he's 70, 55 years later, still trying to figure out how to be better. And in the end, he's just trying to do what the rest of us are trying to do, which is, just figuring out how to do it right, how to love somebody. Yeah, I Fucked That Up is an Interval Presents original production from Silver Sound. Produced by Reed Adler and Jesse Ash. From Interval Presents, executive producers Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Silver Sound are Corey Choi and Reed Adler. 
Story producer, Jesse Ash. Senior producers, Hunt Beatty and Rebecca Halperin. Sound, edit, design, and mix by Luke Allen. Original music by Killy Idol. Special thanks to Director of Operations, Sarah Yu. Senior Director of Digital Strategy and Business Development, Sheffy Ellensweig. And Director of Marketing, Samara Still. I'm your host, Billy Mann. Make sure to follow Yeah, I Fucked That Up. And listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.